Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Fat Mascara is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we all carry around different stressors, big and small. Therapy is a safe space to get those things off your chest. Plus, it can help you develop coping skills that make your life easier. I will give you an example. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've probably heard me say it to Jess or to a guest, reframe. Well, I learned that technique from a therapist. Here's an example. Now that I'm a freelance writer and podcaster, I get lonely working from home and I feel like I'm never gonna get to collaborate on projects again. And that's the truth. Reframe, I get to choose which projects I work on. So I'm in control of what I work on. And if I want to collaborate more with others, I don't have to ask anyone's permission. I can just do it. See what I did there? That's reframing. If you've been thinking about starting therapy or are looking for someone to help you process things and give you coping skills, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash mascara today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash mascara. Again, betterhelp.com slash mascara. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hello, hello. Welcome to Fat Mascara. I'm Jess. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen. So this is our special Friday episode. Jen's going to be having an amazing conversation. But first, Jen, what's going on? What's going on? We have a little housekeeping. We're going to talk about... Okay, you know how we put out two podcasts every week for you guys? We have on Wednesdays, Jess, me, you guys, talking about news, back and forth. Like shooting very the breeze. podcasty feel, shooting the breeze, fun, industry news, products we love, raise a wand, we get the listeners in there. Those episodes that are normally like, what, half an hour to 40 minutes are Wednesdays. Fridays, we always have an interview for you, either one or both of us interviewing a beauty expert, a celebrity, somebody we're interested in learning more about, slightly longer episode, deep dive. Well, it's come to our attention that we have different listener groups for different episodes. Some of you listen to all of it. Mm. Some people are Wednesday people. Some people are Friday people. Totally so we fine. we want to make it it's totally fine. You do you. We want to make it easier for everybody. So we're actually going to be keeping our numbering system that we use. Like right now, you are listening to episode 474. We're going to be keeping the numbers just for the Wednesday episode. So on Wednesday, you'll see episode 475 with Jess and I. Then on Friday, we will have an interview, but it will not have an episode number. It'll just be the name of the interview person. It also makes it less confusing for people that might not be members of the fam. We love you. Even if you're not a regular member of the fam and listener. But you can see the interview episodes without, like, having too much of Jess and I. Obviously, we're the interviewers, so we're there. But it's none of, like, the fam stuff that you're used to. It's none of, like, the deep dive into the industry, that kind of chat back and forth. So those will no longer have numbers. So when you look at your RSS feed, you probably don't even know what that is. So let's say you look at your Spotify list or your Apple podcast list or wherever you listen to us, it will be alternating. There'll be a numbered episode on Wednesdays, no number on Fridays, but it's the same format that you're used to, just a little bit easier for new listeners because we have some of those, too. So welcome. Welcome, new listeners. Maybe they came 
Maybe they came for the legal chat. What do you think? <laughs> That's definitely what they came for. They want some legalese in their life. Actually, this is going to be great. I went deep, Jess. (laughs) So, Jen, let's actually talk more about this chat because I couldn't be here for this one. You know I like to get down and dirty with the details when it comes to all kinds of legal beauty matters. What are you talking about? Let me tell you about our guest, and then we'll talk about what we're going to talk about. So Kelly Bonner, she's a trial attorney in Philadelphia with the firm Dwayne Morris. She's actually a longtime listener of the podcast, which is how we met. She's been with us. She's a member of the fam. But her expertise is something you guys definitely want to hear about. She's researched the history of cosmetics regulation here in the United States, stays up to date on the latest changes in regulations in the legal landscape and beauty in order to help her clients, who are beauty companies that are facing litigation. So a little bit about her. She regularly writes about litigation risk, regulatory issues affecting businesses in cosmetic and personal care. She's been quoted in many publications talking about the FDA and regulation concerns. She also does pro bono work representing applicants for asylum before the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services and also a child advocate in Philadelphia Family Court. Love that. Thank you, Kelly, for your hard work. Anyway, here's what we're here to talk about. We're going to talk about the ways the USA regulates and doesn't regulate cosmetics, which is something you guys ask about all the time that I find immensely confusing. But full disclosure, if you remember, on episode 471, I talked about a new bill that just passed here in the United States that is modernizing cosmetic regulation. Kelly and I actually did this interview and spoke just before that passed, okay? So everything she's saying is accurate as of last month. And still accurate, basically, from a consumer standpoint and from your standpoint, because a lot of these regulation changes haven't gone into effect yet. But I just wanted to mention that because with the new laws that have changed and some of those regulations, if you happen to work in the beauty industry or in the legal profession, I just want to make it clear, this is not meant to be taken as legal advice. Like, we are not right now. She's <laughs> she's an attorney. So, like, right now, she is not her her beauty enthusiast hat is on. She's not giving you legal advice that is completely up to date. However, we are taking an overlook of the way that the industry works, the way cosmetics are regulated, the way they used to be regulated, and like class action lawsuits, some of the litigation beauty companies face, why they face that, what you can do as a consumer to have it got to you right. If something in a beauty product is not great for you, something happens, you had a problem with a beauty product, what do you do? All of that stuff, we're going to talk about it. And I hope you find it informative. This is our Friday deep dive interview. And like I said, every Friday we do those. They will no longer be numbered going forward. And Wednesdays will be our regular episodes that you're used to with numbers in your feed. And if you have questions on that, email Jess. (laughs) Jess at (laughs) fatmascara.com. Just kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Let's meet Kelly. Here we go. Kelly, hi. Welcome to Fat Mascara. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here today. This is going to be fun. I'm warning everybody in advance that we're going to nerd out big time on legal stuff, beauty law. This is what you do, right? Yes. So my name is Kelly Bonner. I am a trial attorney in Philadelphia. I practice in New York for many years. I am a huge beauty dork, and I was lucky enough to figure out how to take my passion for beauty and actually turn it into a career. So I represent corporate clients. I'm a trial lawyer, so I act in court. I write a lot of motions. I advocate, but I represent corporate clients in consumer products and products liability disputes, including a number of clients in the beauty and personal care product space. So when we talked before, I was like, oh, why am I... Why am I going to have a corporate lawyer on? She represents beauty companies. Who represents the consumers? And what you told me was, actually, I would love not to go to court. I would love my companies to be doing all the right things so they don't have legal cases, right? So you have to know both sides of any sort of beauty story that has a legal bent to it, right? Yes, absolutely. And a huge part of what I do is I write and publish and I talk about things that beauty brands need to be aware of, potential risks in advertising, in marketing, in formulating, in advising the consumers. And again, my experience with beauty companies is that they want their consumers happy and rapturous about their products. They do not want them suing them. So the more I can advise on the front end and keep my clients out of court, the happier everyone is. 
Yeah. I mean, and happier and healthier we all are. So before we get into what you do and some of the examples of the type of cases that come up in your work and and some of the the legal precedent that's going on right now as far as labeling and all that kind of stuff, let's just step back a second because I'm not sure that everybody is aware. We're talking about the United States specifically, but like how cosmetics and personal care products are regulated. What's the backstory? (sighs) Okay, so we are going to dork out very hard here because not only am I a lawyer, I was a former history major. (laughs) To provide some background, people have been using cosmetics since 10,000 BC. And throughout that history, they have been used for so many different purposes, but they've consisted of everything from your basic botanicals to more dangerous substances like copper and lead and arsenic. Now, In the early days, cosmetics were homemade, or if you were wealthy enough, they were custom-made. But in the 19th century, cosmetics started to become commercially manufactured and available to ordinary Americans. And those cosmetics contained a number of dangerous ingredients, the same as their homemade predecessors, as well as new ingredients, thanks to advances in industrial chemistry. Just FYI, if you're interested in this extremely dorky and fabulous background, I highly recommend Lisa Eldridge's book, Face Paint. Oh, yes. Yes, it is awesome. But like in the early early 20th century, you see the rise of the progressive movement in the United States and the notion that the safety of what Americans buy and consume is the business of the federal government. And my AP Mm -hmm. U.S. history teacher right now is so happy. In 1906, Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Acts in reaction to Upton Sinclair's The Jungle and consumer safety. But cosmetics weren't included because they weren't considered a serious public health concern at the time. They were typically applied rather than ingested. By the 1930s, that attitude changed. The cosmetics industry boomed based on changing perceptions of who could use cosmetics what type of women were respectable and allowed to use cosmetics. So moving into the middle Mm -hmm. class and the FDA in seeking public support for increased regulatory authority, they created this amazing roadshow exhibition that they called the American chamber of horrors. It featured a number of dangerous products that Americans could still buy even after the 1906 law. And among those products were a bunch of cosmetics, including a coal tar-based eyelash dye that could cause blindness, a depilatory that contained thallium, which is a rat killer, and othene, which promised to help women achieve a flawless complexion, but, you know, through the use of mercury as an active ingredient, which is not good. So eventually the FDA, yeah, no, that very bad. So eventually the FDA as lobbying led to the passage of the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetics Act of 1938, which is still with us today in in very insubstantially similar form uh, with respect to cosmetics. And then in 1966, the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act required products marketed on a retail basis to consumers to be honestly and informatively labeled. So that is the regulatory landscape we live in today. And It's important to sort of remember what that history was, the idea that, well, cosmetics aren't really a public health concern, and there are thousands of years of people using cosmetics. Yeah, so this roadshow of horrors, I'm fascinated by this. The government was the one that went out there advocating for consumers in a way, being like, hey, consumers, if you didn't even know, you know, your face cream has mercury in it. What do they do, like a museum exhibit? Like, here's your face cream and look at this lady's face and what happened to it? They literally put on a carnival. Well, they literally put on a traveling exhibit, and this is in the 1930s. So they're schlepping this thing from city to city, like a, like a circus sideshow. Yes, but it's being put on by the FDA, so it's not the full federal government. It's a yes. bunch of a bunch of guys at the FDA and a number of women okay. actually, because Eleanor Roosevelt was a she, she observed the exhibit. She thought it was fascinating, but yeah, they would travel from city to city, showing the various products. And describing what the public health concerns were and actual cases where people had experienced blindness, severe illness, death, and death, and at least it was linked to at least uh, the cold tar-based eyelash I was in one case at least to link to somebody dying. So, yeah, uh, just illustrating that, that, no. That we know of. That we know of. So really just illustrating, no, these are 
These are products that people are buying and we need to take them seriously. And it clearly something happened because we passed that law. Now, when people talk about today, they're like, we haven't updated the safety laws about cosmetics in, I mean, at this point, what is it? 90 years, it seems like, right? 80 plus, yeah. Don't make me do math. That's that's why I went to law school. <laughs> but the point being, no, that is true. And things have clearly changed a lot from when we were doing coal tar mascara. And there's all these products that I'm sure the FDA at that time couldn't even conceive that there would be like sulfide bonding hair shampoos and, you know, cosmeceuticals and all these things that we have now. And so I think the question I get a lot from listeners and from regular people who might not be in this world is like, well, all that stuff gets t- tested for safety before it comes out in the store, right? And what would you say to that? Yes, they do uh, They do test for safety. Products and their ingredients must be safe for consumer use according to product labeling or customary use and must not be misbranded or adulterated before they go to market. The onus is on the company to ensure that the products are safe before they go to market and when they hit the market. Now, they're not required to be approved. Cosmetics are regulated differently than drugs, But once they're on the market, they have to be safe. Okay, that's a good point of distinction. So when did we start separating out cosmetics from drugs? And when you say drugs, I I think we should stick to over-the-counter type drugs like sunscreen, sulfur for acne, benzoyl peroxide, rather than getting into RX like pharmaceuticals. So when did that distinction get made or how? That is an old school distinction that originated in the 1938 Act. The basic distinction is... Cosmetics are defined as articles intended to be applied to the skin for the purpose of cleansing, beautifying, promoting attractiveness, or altering the appearance. And intent is going to be, that's the hinge point. Because over-the-counter drugs are intended for a therapeutic use, such as diagnosing or treating. Yeah, it's so tricky, though, because if I want to affect the structure of, say, my collagen in the intent of beautifying, I'm kind of like doing both, right? Well, and it depends on how the consumer is perceiving it. It depends on how the product is advertised. It depends on how it's promoted. It depends on on the various claims that the company makes. And that can be a big issue for brands because the distinction can be very easily blurred. And you'll see instances where the FDA has issued warning letters to companies saying, guys, the line was back there. You're a little yeah. over here. I And let's get, we'll get into that. But before we do, back to regulating for safety and the fact that, no, there's no license. You have to get to sell a product. The government isn't out there with a bunch of chemists testing everything. The onus is on the company to make their product safe before they put it out. So if they put something out, and we find out, oh my gosh, there was an ingredient in there that wasn't safe, or maybe there's a rare, rare reaction that happened. How might a company be penalized if that happens? And that's a great question because there are numerous different ways a company can be penalized. The obvious example is reputational risk. Losing credibility with customers in an extremely competitive industry. And right now the beauty industry is 24-7 global on social media. So you screw up, you're going to get called out on it very quickly. And then you are also looking at the cost of conducting a recall, which they are not insignificant. From a regulatory standpoint, if the FDA determines that the products were adulterated, contaminated, or misbranded, they can issue public warning letters, and those are posted on the website, the FDA's website, and they can threaten to seize products or enjoin sales. The FDA can also monitor companies that are conducting voluntary product recalls and will request, in certain instances, the FDA has publicly requested a public recall uh, in writing. And then finally, the big kicker here is that in the United States, we have private litigation. It is easier to access courts for private litigants in the United States. This is, this is where I come in. Litigation is inherently uncertain and it is time-consuming, expensive and embarrassing. So you got to fight, you got to fight, but it's not a, it's never a sure shot. Oh, any beauty brand that sees the headline with like class action lawsuit for hair loss or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I'll just make up an example. Like that hit on all the other things too, reputational problems. You're not going to sell product even if you win the lawsuit. Now everybody's scared of it. So Mm -hmm. yeah, clearly it behooves these companies to make safe products. You want your product being touted on like Allure's best of 2022, not on like class action litigation on the headlines of like the Wall Street Journal. 
Are there any examples of of this that you can give us where this has happened, where a company was penalized in some way? Yes. So I can first direct you to the FDA's website because there is an entire list of public warning letters and it maintains a list of companies that also have undertaken or completed voluntary recalls. So there's a whole list right there. And then additionally, you probably remember in 2019, the FDA issued a safety alert to certain cosmetics after they tested positive for tremolite asbestos. Those products were voluntarily recalled within the week. And then I just, because I was, I'm a giant nerd and I was reading about this, like in the last month, the United States Customs and Border Patrol of whole things, acting in collaboration with the FDA, seized about five tons of eyeshadow sticks coming into the port of New Orleans because they lacked required ingredient declarations and they couldn't accurately state what was in the products. If you if you can't identify what ingredients are in your products, you cannot assure what that they are adulterated or misbranded. So they were seized. And according to the CPB, those sticks retailed at 26 bucks a pop. So these were these were prestige brand eyeshadow sticks. So people who are out there saying like, oh, it's the Wild West, anything goes with companies, like as as much as our government has problems doing this work because they're understaffed, I imagine, like these kinds of, they do happen still, like seizing these products because of consumer safety concerns. It does mm-hmm. happen. Yes. I'm just guessing it probably might not get as much news. I hadn't heard of that. And this is like, you know, something I follow regularly. Yeah. And poor, poor, poor FDA needs a PR <laughs> boost. <laughs> they, you know, they, the FDA, they do a lot, they do a lot of really good work in this sphere. But again, cosmetics are always going to be less heavily regulated than drugs or food because they are typically products that you apply topically to the skin rather than ingest. And it's anyone's guess whether that will continue, that attitude will persist now that you're really seeing the rise of wellness supplements, beauty supplements, how those are going yeah, to be regulated an and ingest. Yeah, and ingestibles. When you say this company, for example, with this example, they didn't couldn't say what ingredients were in there, so we don't know if they're state. What is this? Is there a master list of ingredients that can and can't be used in cosmetics in the United States? And does it get updated based on new science? Who controls it? The EU has an extensive list of ingredients that cannot be used in cosmetics. The United States does not maintain a list of acceptable ingredients, but they do have regulations that specifically prohibit or restrict the use of certain ingredients. So like chlorofluorocarbon propellants or zirconium-containing complexes, those are prohibited from use in cosmetics. And new regulations get promulgated all the time as the science develops. Additionally, you're starting Mm -hmm. to see legislation proposed legislation emerging at the state level and sometimes at the federal level talking about specific ingredients and whether or not they should be allowed for use in cosmetics. But again, those are still in flux right now. So many beauty brands love to talk about Europe's list of more than 1,300 banned ingredients compared to only, I I forget what it is, like 11 in the United States. I'm assuming these two that you just mentioned are on it. Is that like a a false equivalence. Like, does that is that a good way to say, hey, look, our stuff's not as safe as the stuff that's for sale in, in Europe? So this is actually funny because I am married to an EU citizen. And my friends, every time he goes over to Germany, my friends send him shopping lists because under the theory that European cosmetics cosmetics are inherently better. And then I still have to explain to him what half the things on the list are, because I swear when this man goes to Target, I still have to explain to him what everything is. He would literally shower with detergent. And I just, this anecdote for me kind of illustrates the inherent mythology in marketing sort of European beauty products that makes it very easy to romanticize or idealize them in the same way that American beauty products are fetishized in the EU as vibrant and sexy and very young. In actuality, the U.S. and the EU do have very similar regulatory regimes when it comes to cosmetics. They don't require cosmetics to submit to pre-market approval because of the whole topical application versus ingestion distinction. They both require products Mm -hmm. to be safe before they enter the stream of commerce. And independent bodies of scientific experts review test data and opine on ingredient safety. But then how does, like, one random phthalate get on the EU list and then everybody picks that out and, like, oh, it's still in the U.S. stuff and we're, like, how does that happen if they're equally safe and have the same pre-market kind of regulations you're talking about? 
am I am I getting too in the weeds here? No, like, I, and I think it's I think it also kind of illustrates a key distinction between the EU and the U.S. regulatory systems. The EU is more initially assertive in terms of regulations. They ban okay. more ingredients, including a number of ingredients that typically wouldn't be used in cosmetics, but they are initially at like at the front at the front end more assertive in banning ingredients. Whereas in the U.S., less assertive in terms of, all right, we're going to ban all of these ingredients. What happens is on the back mm-hmm. end, where the private litigation system in the United States is so much more robust and so much more demanding in terms of transparency and discovery and accessible to consumers. So it's it's kind of comparing they're very similar in a way, but they just have... Like it all comes out in the wash. Like it, Yeah. Exactly. But some people are pushing. You mentioned at state level. There are some pushes to sort of update. I think some consumers feel safer with the pre-market idea. Like, I, I see what you say. At the very end of the day, equally companies end up with as safe products because they don't want to be penalized or because they couldn't do it pre-market. But yeah. like a lot of consumers are like, why even take the chance? Do that all before it even comes to my local target so I don't have to think about maybe I'm going to be running a class action or just like a regular lawsuit against this hair company. Where are those pushes for new regulation coming from and like, and what are people pushing for? So without speaking to any individual motives, there are a few and it's a combination of things. Even the industry itself has acknowledged the act's limitations and they're frankly asking for increased guidance because it it makes it harder for them to operate. Beauty mm-hmm. consumers, they are asking for modified regulations. They are extremely plugged in into what's happening with the cosmetics industry. And yes, if the EU bans a certain phthalate from inclusion in cosmetics, they are going to be clamoring and asking their legislatures and their favorite beauty brands on TikTok, on Twitter. Well, I don't know anyone's using that anymore, but um, definitely asking their favorite... <laughs> asking their favorite beauty brands, like, why are you including this? And they're expecting an answer. And there's upwards pressure on legislators to take another look at cosmetics regulation from consumers and from the industry itself. Yeah. And and so does that happen then right now on the state level? Because I realize like California has separate laws with regards to this kind of stuff than the rest of the states, right? California is a leader in regulating the beauty industry. And given the size of the California market, you are you are dancing to California's tune. Either you are dancing to California's tune or you are not selling your products in California and California is huge. There is no beauty brand that is going to avoid California. But right now at the state level especially, there are a lot of developments in regulating ingredients. The big issue right now are products that contain what we call PFAS. They are a class of compounds that inadvertently present in consumer goods because of their use in manufacturing processes or presence in water supplies, or in the case of certain cosmetics, intentionally added to make them more spreadable and more lasting. And you mm-hmm. see at least at least four states have banned the sale of products that contain intentionally added PFAS, approximately like 32 states. I have to double check, but it, at, last, at last count, it's 32. What, and why were they banned? Health concerns? I would say consumer concerns, again, the science is still murky, but you are seeing legislatures responding to consumer concerns about the presence of PFAS in ingredients. Then this is where it gets tricky because it's like, okay, maybe they have been shown to be endocrine disruptors in a mouse, Mm -hmm. or I don't know the details with PFAS, but I feel like it's always something's an endocrine disruptor in a mouse. (laughs) That's Mm -hmm. where it all starts. That's not to make light of it. Obviously, like if something causes endocrine disruption can lead to cancers and that kind of thing, you don't want that in your cosmetics. So each of these state legislatures are having to like go deep into the science and decide whether or not on a case-by-case basis of different ingredients. Is that how it works? Each of them, yes, 50 different states. So right now you're looking at 32 different legislatures trying to go yes. deep and decide whether or not they want to they want to require disclosure of the presence of PFAS. They want to uh, restrict mm-hmm. the use of PFAS in certain ingredients. Summer is fast approaching, which means it's shapewear season. Just kidding. It's really wedding season. But I just got an invitation to a wedding in Philadelphia, and guess what I'll be wearing? Honey love. I'm not sure about the rest of the outfit or the dress, but the shapewear is going to be honey love. 
Here's why. Honeylove has revolutionized compression technology so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating when you're wearing shapewear. Plus, they have lingerie-inspired design details that you'll want to show off, and all their fabrics are breathable to keep you nice and cool, which is perfect for hot days. Let me tell you a story. I remember being at a wedding, this was a few years ago, pre-Honey Love, and I wore a jumpsuit, and I wasn't sure if the bathroom door locked well, but I had to take off the entire jumpsuit and then roll down the shapewear to pee, and I was like holding onto the back of the door at the same time, completely naked in the bathroom, and it took so long, and I caused this whole backup of the bathroom line, and after that, I was like, never again. Until Honey Love came along. Honey Love's superpower shorts have a 100% cotton gusset so you don't have to wear underwear underneath. And there's a convenient opening in the underwear area so you don't have to take off the whole thing to go to the bathroom. It's so easy. Honey Love products make you look good and feel good. Whether it's for a wedding, event, an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is the perfect plus one. Treat yourself to the best bras and shapewear on the market and save 20% off at honeylove.com mascara. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off. That's honeylove.com slash mascara. After you purchase, they'll ask you where you heard about them. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Honeylove.com slash mascara for 20% off. The summer vibes are just getting started, so shape your life with Honey Love. Hey everyone, it's Jen, and I have decided this is going to be the summer of uniform dressing. I'm going to have a few pieces on heavy rotation, and I'm telling you right now, they're all going to be linen, and they're all going to be from Quince. I don't know why I'm going so hard on linen right now, but it just feels right. And Quince specializes in timeless pieces made of premium fabric, and the best part is that all the Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30. I am personally very into the 100% European linen pants. They're cropped and easy. There's even a cute pinstriped version. And when I wear them, I look like I just stepped off a yacht. Do I have a yacht? No. Do I know what yachters wear? No, but that's the vibe. The linen pants come in sizes extra small to 3X and they're less than $40. Okay, like 10 cents less, they're $39.90. But the quality is excellent and they wash really well. How does Quince do it? They cut out the cost of the middleman and pass the savings on to us. Plus, Quince works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash fat mascara for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com, Q-U-I-N-C-E, quince.com slash fat mascara to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash fat mascara. Okay, everyone, I am one of those people who, when it comes to wellness, sorry, but it's got to fit into the pockets of my day. Five minutes here, seven minutes there, when I'm like in the kitchen and I'm microwaving something long, it's got to be convenient. And that is why Aloe Moves works for me. My mindset has changed. The app makes it easy for me to keep my wellness routine on track because they have everything in one place and bite-sized little bits. Yoga, Pilates, fitness classes, mindfulness, self-care tips, healthy recipes, so much more. From beginner to advanced, Aloe Moves has the flow or class that's going to fit into your schedule. Their classes range from five minutes to an hour, depending on what you're feeling that day. You know what feeling I'm feeling most days? I'm feeling 10 minutes. I've been doing that's good. Joanna Thompson's. Right? That's about it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. 10 minutes. Joanna Thompson does these yoga lattes in 10. One day will be abs. One day will be arms. Today, Jess, is booty day. And we're just <laughs> going to get it done all in 10 minutes. If you're trying to get a good sweat, then you've got to try their award-winning workouts like the sweat-inducing yoga flows or the reformer Pilates workouts without weights. You can also find stress relief with meditations, affirmations, face yoga, gua sha, learn to do dry brushing. How many times have we talked about dry brushing on this podcast? Aloe Moves will teach you how to do it. Unlock your personal wellness routine with Aloe Moves. Go to alomoves.com now and use the code MASCARA20 for an exclusive 30-day free trial and enjoy 20% off an annual membership. That's alomoves.com, code MASCARA20. alomoves.com, code MASCARA20. Let's get into a little bit the labeling. We've talked about safety of beauty products, but I feel like let's go back to this drug versus cosmetic thing and all the labeling. This confuses people a lot, and I know this is part of your work. How are the, like, 
claims and words used to sell cosmetics regulated. It's not the FDA that does that, right? Oh, no, the FDA does that as well. It's the FDA, the FDA does that as well as the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, pursuant to its authority under the Federal Trade Commission Act. So yes, you have two different regulators. So who handles what? How's that work? Yeah. The FDA generally looks at a safety perspective or are you crossing the line into drugs? The FTC Mm -hmm. is looking at like, hey, is this kind of misleading? Is this confusing? Is this maybe over-promising? So really looking at potential false advertising or misleading advertising. Right. And obviously what's written on the bottle is a form of advertising. You're not going to pick it up without knowing what's in it. So that's where that comes into play. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Do you have any examples of like how this penalization might happen? Like say you're all good on the safety front with the FDA, but then you put out this product and what are some of the kind of cases that consumers or people have with regards to false claims and being misled? Okay. So- Products that fail to comply with the Fair Packaging and Labeling Act are considered misbranded under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, and that can result in enforcement action by the FDA, and that would be similar to the ones I previously described. But when the FTC takes action against brands to enjoin what it perceives as unfair or deceptive practices or false advertisements, they can require companies to pay millions of dollars over charges. They can enjoin certain types of advertising. They can, they can make life very difficult. I'm thinking of an example as recently as 2019. The FTC required a company to pay um, almost $2 million over charges that had deceptively marketed products as uh, certified organic and vegan when the products contained uh, non-vegan or non-organic ingredients and weren't certified as like, organic. The FTC also noted that because the company had supplied its influencers with labels bearing false certifications that the products were organic and vegan. And the company had also endorsed a number of videos on YouTube making these same claims. The FTC told the company, no, you can't do that anymore. You're not allowed to do this under the terms of the settlement. Who found out that this company didn't have organic ingredients? Was this just like some smart beauty consumers like, wait a second? Yeah. Somebody made Somebody filed a complaint with the FTC. Or somebody somebody reported this to the FTC and the FTC started looking into it. Does that ever happen without lawyers? Or is it usually like, I'm always curious, like if it's, okay, this is going to be crazy, but like, are there ambulance chaser lawyers in the beauty world that are like, I'm going to be on the lookout for like false misleading claims and then find customers to file suits? Or am I being like completely like tin hat about it? No, they exist. Yeah, they exist. And what you'll see is if one beauty company gets sued for false advertising claims, other beauty companies that make very similar claims are probably going to get sued with copycat lawsuits as well. But I also think there's probably people that like, I'm thinking of not just with this clean, natural, organic, which is a huge important part of what's going on with the, the beauty world today. But like, say this cream says, could make you look up to five years younger. And I'll use this cream. And I don't think I look five years younger. Do I have a case? It Again, it you'll start, you start to see copycat claims. So... Yes, uh, these are these are private lawsuits where an individual will sue a company saying, um, "I purchased this product because I believed that the act that the ingredient in it, collagen, would work a certain way, and then I find out that the collagen is actually the molecule is too big to cross the skin barrier, so it doesn't work the way I thought it would work. So that's false advertising because you touted the existence of this product." And I paid a price premium for it, so I'm going to sue you. Oh, because I thought the collagen would would land in my skin and be more collagen, but really it's just like a moisturizer or something, which happens all the time. With They'll be able to make a claim, and you're like, oh, wrinkles less noticeable, but well, maybe because your skin was just more hydrated, so it's yes. not actually changing your skin. Well, and if it actually changed your skin or affected the way your skin worked, you would have issues of whether or not this is a cosmetic or a drug. So what you see a lot of cosmetics say, reduce the appearance of wrinkles. And yes, a moisturizer, moisturizing your skin will reduce the appearance of wrinkles. And again, the woman didn't say that the product itself didn't work. Her concern was that the product didn't work the way she thought it would. And so that's actually an interesting case to watch. Yeah. And as consumers get more educated, I'm sure that's going to be more the case. I'm thinking of a product that came out like recently. I know it works with like 
it helps to reduce pigmentation like that caused by melasma. But like you can't say reduces melasma, otherwise you're mm-hmm. a drug. Yeah, then you then you run into issues of what can you say? So you say reduces the appearance of discoloration. Yeah. Here's another one that confuses a lot of people and me. Clean, natural, and organic. You were just talking about this actually with an or- with a case yes. example that you had. Like who regulates those terms? Because I feel like natural means nothing anymore, but that's because I know this world. Like you could say this is natural and it's like, well, it's natural because it's on God's earth and a big chemical factory made it like it's natural. Like who regulates those words? So I published an article about that back in September. Neither the FDA nor the FTC have defined the term clean or natural for use in cosmetics labeling. The FTC has said it would review its so-called green guides, the guides for the use of environmental marketing claims, and potentially revisit its guidance with respect to things like non-toxic or organic. But in the absence of clear regulatory guidelines about what these words mean, they are open to interpretation and brands promoting clean beauty have adopted very different criteria based on lists of prohibited ingredients Mm -hmm. and sustainability commitments. But what those terms mean to consumers can be very different. For example, I'm aware of a retailer that was sued for promoting as clean products simply because they contain synthetic ingredients. And natural is very often conflated with safe, while chemical or synthetic is regarded with suspicion. And as I had mentioned at the top of the podcast, natural does not always mean safe. A lot of those OG cosmetics back in the day, they were not safe. They were natural. They sure as heck weren't safe. But again, there's been a lot of litigation around, you know, people don't know what those terms mean. And in the absence of clear guidance, it's open to anyone's interpretation. and And those definitions will get worked out in the court. Yeah, because I'm thinking of all the retail, the way it's being regulated right now feels like the retailers are doing the regulating because they each have a separate no-no list. And they're like, if you're clean at Sephora, here's the 20 ingredients mm-hmm. you don't have. If you are if you are sold at Credo, it's these ingredients. If you're clean at, you know, there's a, there's a million retailers. No. So it's... They just, and it's not just product ingredients either. It, again, sustainability commitments. Are you reef safe? Are you cruelty-free? What kind yeah. of what kind of packaging do you use? A lot of things go into what we perceive as clean beauty, and in the absence of clear guidelines, it's it, that really is a no man's land. So reef safe, the ones you just are there any other terms or claims that have caused confusion that have led to legal action that you can think of? I know organic because I remember actually when a lot of brands that had the word organic in the brand name. Once the USDA organic got into the beauty world, they had to like rename their products. Yep. But any others? I've seen thing, I've seen litigation involving vegan, cruelty-free, reef safe, green, natural, clean, toxic, non-toxic, many, many different None ter- of that's regulated. I mean, at least non-toxic and toxic are not regulated in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. There are other places in the U.S. code where they are regulated, but at least not with respect to cosmetics. So again, it's still, people are coming up with their own definitions of what they mean. So we've covered a lot here. I'm curious if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, I have had a health concern from beauty product, for example, or I am confused by this claim and I think it's like, what does a person do? There are a few things a consumer can do. I'd say initially report it to the brand. There are various ways to get in touch with cosmetics brands. They take their consumer complaints seriously. Alternatively, for for adverse health outcomes, uh, adverse health incidents, report it to the FDA. Yes, there are issues with the FDA being understaffed, but the FDA does investigate adverse health incidents with respect to beauty products. That is something that they will look into. They're regulating right now. I just got a notice from my laundry detergent company that it's being... uh... They have like some bacterial contamination issue and the FDA is involved, but they were the ones that like sent the email out. What about the, with claims? Is is that still like you should go to the company first? Be like, hey, this said, you said this is going to make me look five years younger and it doesn't. Yeah. Go to the company first. And uh, if there's, if there's no response or if you find that it's, there's nothing happening, consumers have gone to have reported issues to the FTC. Again, consumers have also gone to, gone the private litigation route. So there are ways that beauty consumers can interact with brands 
to deal with these issues. Besides just comments on the Instagram and tweeting at them until they get back to you. Which is always, which isn't a bad thing either, right? Like, I mean, it gets noticed. It definitely gets noticed. Yeah. Clearly, you're a big beauty consumer. You wouldn't have like, you became a lawyer, but like you didn't just fall into learning about the horror shows of the FDA Horror Show, Roadshow Act, whatever it's called of the 1920s. Will you tell us what are some of your, like your favorite products? What are you into? Oh my God. Oh, so many, so many. I, I love like legacy products. Like uh, my go-tos are like Clinique's Black Honey, NARS Creamy Concealer, Touche Clot. Thank you for years of making it look like I haven't slept under my desk or pulled an all-nighter. <laughs> yes. Also, I cannot be trusted with nail polish because of who I am as a person, but I feel like I saw Uma Thurman wearing Chanel's Rouge Noir back when it was called Vamp, and I'm obsessed with it. And Wait, why can't you be trusted with nail polish? Are you, like, clumsy? Because it, 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 lasts like a, it lasts a hot second with me. Like, my hand goes in the purse. My hand goes, like, to grab, like, to get my it's toddler chipping, away yeah. from killing his brother, and then, like, yeah, half, half of it's chipped. So nothing, nothing I do. I've tried everything. And you're, you said your husband's, he's German, right? Yes. Do you, are there any, like when you, when you go to Europe, even if you think it's silly, do you ask him to stock up on anything? So I try to sneak along with him. And then whenever possible, I go so hard at French pharmacies. It's like, I, I, Macron, Macron should thank me because every time I'm over there, I'm single-handedly boosting the <laughs> French economy. Like Embryolis, Vichy, Bioderma, the the Nux dry oil. I have different versions of that. Oh, I have like I, I have it sitting next to me right. This is the spray bottle, and then I also have the have the shimmer version. And every, it's every time I wear that, like I have weird people coming up to me sniffing me, and I'm like, okay, well, that happened. And also, I mean, I spent years in New York, so honestly, like that's the least weird thing that happens. People sniffing you. It does smell good. Yeah. So before I let you go, I'm going to do the Fat Mascara 5 with you. I know you're a listener because that's how we got connected anyway. P.S. I love our listeners. They're so smart. And you know we do the Fat Mascara 5. Are you ready for your somewhat speed round? Hit it. Okay. So what was the first makeup you ever wore? And two-part question, how old were you when you wore it? Oh, it was the Chanel eyeshadow palette circa 1991. So I will leave it at that. I was like, eight years old. My mom was nursing one of our neighbors and she was like this old school dame who had fabulous products. And I just saw this little gorgeous black compact and thought it was like a little trip. I thought, I thought it was a treasure box filled with jewels. So yes, I got hooked on Chanel early. You went in hard. It wasn't just some chapstick for Kelly. She gave me all of these beautiful little compacts of Chanel. And I'm like, this is magic. She ruined you. She ruined me. Yeah, she was she was a fabulous old lady. She just she had amazing taste. So these days, what's your favorite place to shop for beauty products? I would say Violet Gray and Rescue Spa. I make a lot of bad financial decisions there. Also, Bigelow's mm. in the West Village and Ida Stevenustis, which is currently in its third location on Orchard Street. I've been shopping there since it was like on Christopher Street. Oh, those are good ones. What's the best beauty product name you've heard lately? Like I know you, cause you pay attention to like names and labeling. It's part of your job. Yes. So I would say Tom Ford, I cannot say it on the podcast, but I, I think, I think <laughs> she we works all know. for a fancy corporate law firm. We've said it on the podcast before. <laughs> uh, it's Tom Ford's bleeping fabulous. It's not wrong. It is. And he is also, I'm a huge fan of Serge Luton's Greek Claire. Pardon my French. It's terrible. It's just, it's such a beautiful, evocative name. I absolutely, it like means gray light. Absolutely love it. I was trying to do like bad French. I was like gray something, gray light. Ooh, that's yeah, delightful. It's, it's like lavender and wet dirt and snow and ice. And it is, it's like, it's just pure, it's like moody wintry. I have not smelled that and I'm definitely going to go sniff that. Thank you. Okay. So what's good. your favorite beauty packaging that like products that just look good in your bathroom, uh, that kind of like thing? Like Chanel, Gucci Westman. It's like nineties era Versace in there. All I need is like the safety pin dress. Everything is black and gold. <laughs> <laughs> and let's see, other than like looking at your gorgeous, fabulous bathroom, how do you unwind at the end of the day? Ha, unwind. Lawyers don't unwind. We just roll the stress over. It's great. We just compact it. But if I can, if I if I do get like an off night, I'll unwind with like a great drink and a great book. Rereading any or knows a, a simple passion, which is 
unbelievable. And I'm a really big fan of the Negroni Spagliato with Prosecco. So thank you, House of the Dragon TikTok, for that particular recommendation. That's quite a fabulous life. I'm picturing you like, yes, I know you have two young children and a very busy household, but I'm now I'm picturing you sipping Negronis, reading great literature, and like spraying like Serge Lutin all over yourself. It, it, in, in, my, in my bathrobe, yelling at my toddler to stop trying to beat up the infant while like holding my drink over their heads while Coco Melon plays in the background. That is my life right now. And it's I'm, it's a great life, clearly. I'm so glad that you came on the podcast, that we got connected. I really feel like this has been helpful for consumers, but also people that work at beauty brands because they want to see the state of like what's going on with our industry. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's been so much fun. We hope you enjoyed the show. It's your reviews and feedback that help us make the podcast even better. Head over to iTunes to rate and review us or email your thoughts to info at fatmascara.com. We also want to answer your beauty questions and hear what products you love. To share a Razor One product review or to ask a beauty question, email us at info at fatmascara. If you send it as a voice memo file, we can even share your voice on the podcast. You can also do that by leaving us a voice message. Our phone number in the United States is 646-481-8182. Thanks so much for listening. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things that you love are checked by experts. Not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff. With real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder, or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 